So, welcome, welcome to the, uh, the final session for lunch. Um, we've only got half an hour, so I'll keep my opening remarks very short, because there's lots of interesting things to hear from, from Nadia and from Yasmin. Um, if, if, we, uh, if, if it feels like we need to run over at all into, into, into lunch, then, then we may do, but we'll, we'll see how we go. Um, this, this session, my name is, is Matthew Eltringham. I am uh, also from College of Journalism, uh, Jonathan Baker, as was Jonathan Baker in the previous session. Um, we're here to, um, to look at and to discuss uh, what, uh, what journalists can do with social media to improve their journalism, um, how, how we can use social media in, in, in the newsroom. Um, and it's great that we've got Nadia um, Hahn from uh, ORF in Austria and Yasmin El Rafi. Uh, from Sweden. Both are former fellows, um, research fellows at the LSE, and both are working journalists in their newsrooms in their, in their, newsrooms in, uh, in, in their home countries. Um, Yasmin has uh, done some work on using social media to uh, find and access minority groups, um, and I think uh, the lessons from Sweden and uh, to, to the UK, I think, are, are quite interesting that we'll hear some, something more about. Um, and Nadia... Um, is look, has, has spent a lot of time looking at how uh, uh, public service broadcasting can benefit from, from social media and what the use of, uh, of social media can be for public service broadcasting. So both, both of them have, have short-ish presentations, and after that, we'll hopefully, we'll open it up for some, for some comments and some, some discussion. Nadia, first of all, thank you. So welcome. Um, I'm a business journalist at uh, Austrian Public Radio, ORF in Vienna. I'm also a former LSE alumni, so it's a great honor to be back here. And at my fellowship, um, I looked at what value social media can bring to public service journalism. And the obvious answer is a lot, but I didn't want to come up with an evangelist uh, paper that said social media is great and you need to do it. I wanted to take a critical approach and look at uh, what the good things are and what the possible traps and dilemmas are that public service journalists need to watch out for. So I'll, I'll uh, share my, a summary with you of my findings. Why does it matter? I think the cover of the last cover of Newsweek tells it all. It's paying a tribute to Twitter, and it shows us that more and more people consume uh, news via social media. I wanted to look at how fit a European uh, public service broadcasters in, in, on the subject of social media, and I did a little survey asking them, do you have an editorial policy, do you think it is public value? And I think the numbers are quite surprising, actually, because only 65% agreed that social media could provide public value. Roughly half don't have a strategy, and only 12% of the people replied said that most of their reporters use social media daily. So there's a lot to learn, I think. Um, I went to the BBC to ask whether they think social media is public value, and they have a very, very clear answer. Yes, it is. They've changed their mission from inform, educate, and entertain to inform, educate, and connect. What does connect mean? Connecting people to the BBC and connecting people to each other on the platforms uh, of the BBC. And you, Matthew, gave me the quote, you have to fish where the fishes are, you have to reach your audience where it is, and uh, also heard it's not um, up to the audience to find you, it's up to you to find the audience. There's also an efficiency argument made that if you receive license fees, then you need to make sure that your programs reach people on as many platforms as possible to make the most out of the money. 
And there's another argument in it. Newspapers are declining, so public service broadcasters are becoming even more important in, uh, in the sense that they need to reach the audience with high-quality content. I want to give you a few examples now of what I thought were good public value examples, but I think this quote says it all. It's uh, by an editor of a BBC radio program. She said she wouldn't hire anyone who doesn't know how to use Twitter. So here's a change in culture. Um, this is an example of how you can use Twitter. This is my Hootsuite account, how I organize my Twitter account. Make it your own newswire. Follow the people and the hashtags relevant to your story. You will have better stories with better sources. You're closer to the story, and you have your sources. You have your stories faster. One of the BBC journalists I interviewed told me that he uses Twitter. Eighty percent of his research is Twitter, and only twenty percent is newswires. Make sure you, you know how to use Twitter well. Another uh, example is uh, from Channel 4. I really like this one. Um, Channel 4 used Facebook to support a story it did on a video game called Have a Hotel. A lot of teenagers played, and they found out that um, pedophiles were using that game to chat up teenagers. So what did they do? They supported the whole story on Facebook. They found the audience where it was, the audience that it mattered to, the teenagers, on Facebook. They found the parents of the teenagers on Facebook saying, you know, uh, here's a child safety expert, what can you do? Um, they found the teenagers that they brought on air on Facebook. So a, a very good example of public value, I think. Um, of course, traps and dilemmas, we've talked about this in this conference a lot. Uh, beware of false information, fake people and images. The BBC spoke about this just now. Um, another important thing to bear in mind is also that you, you might end up with tunnel vision. Not every shitstorm on Twitter is relevant to a whole country. So um, make sure that you always take that step back in the heat of a big argument on social media and think, well, is it actually relevant to a larger audience? Here's my favorite um, fake person on Twitter. He's Austrian. <laughs> the example comes from Sue Llewellyn in the audience. Uh, Felix Baumgartner, when he jumped from space, there were lots of fake Felixes out there, and they were retweeted in, in seconds. And people didn't bother clicking on the Felix Baumgarten thing where he said that this was a hoax. But as if the guy was tweeting from space. But, um, another, another nice example from uh, Channel 4 is, is the No Go Britain campaign. Channel 4 had the, uh, the rights for the Paralympics. And in context, they um, wanted to do stories on how disabled people get around public transport. And it was very hard for them to find people. So they went on Twitter to find people, and they were surprised that they got such a large reaction um, that they decided to come up with a campaign called No Go Britain, where they asked people on one specific day within 24 hours to document their journeys. And then they went on to, to make the tweets of the people their story. So they didn't use Twitter to say, look, we've got a great story, you should watch it. They used Twitter to say, tell us your story and we'll make it our story. And um, they also invited disabled people on a discussion on air where they sat face-to-face -to, -face to uh, bosses of transport companies. So another great example of public value. You give a voice to a community. Um, you can use social media to provide a survey, uh, to provide a service. And um, the BBC Have Your Say accounts are a bit of a mixture. Here they ask people, um, are you affected by the floods? 
So basically, you invite the audience to tell their story, but of course it's also a service to other people. They see what's going on in your neighborhood, in your proximity. Another example of the survey uh, service is um, Hurricane Sandy here. The BBC um, posted information <coughs> on how to find evacuation plans, shelters, um, and other relevant information. Well, here's a sensitive one. It's about credibility and accountability. I was very amazed. Um, I was here during the Jimmy Savile scandal when it broke, uh, broke and during the um, BBC Panorama program that basically revealed what had gone wrong with the Newsnight program, the BBC tweeted bad news about itself. I thought that was pretty amazing. And this kind of stuff can help build credibility when you're just about to lose it. So, more traps and dilemmas, editorial control. No editor-in-chief on earth can monitor every tweet and post that's going out from their staff. So it's very important to give training to people. I learned at the BBC two-thirds of the journalists have had training. Um, so that's a key message to take home. The other one is know your audience. You should know who is on social media. Is, is the audience of your program really on social media? What platform? How are they using it? Um, another challenge is the style of writing. Social media requires informal writing skills, but you still need to provide public value. You still can't be, um, you can't um, use, write your opinion or say whatever you like. You still have to remember it has to be impartial, it has to be relevant, and so on. And true. <laughs> uh, the other important question, are you ever private on Twitter? A lot of uh, public service journalists have their private Twitter accounts, and they say, oh, this is my private account. Um, no, you're never private on Twitter. You are a known name in the public. So even on your private Twitter account, you can't say what you think or you can't say, I think this minister is an idiot. Don't do it. <laughs> I also looked at how social media is changing newsrooms. This is a picture of the new uh, multimedia newsroom of the BBC. The uh, social media journalists are sitting right in the middle at the desk here. They are at the heart of the, of, of the newsroom because they tweet breaking news. So before anything is on the radio or television, it's tweeted, it's out there. So they basically become a newswire. I've worked at a newswire before and I looked at what they're doing and said, this is the same thing as filing headlines, you know, just in a more interesting language, really. And what does this mean? It means that every headline you post needs a story. Where is that story? It's on the internet. So you kind of have to rethink and think internet first. You have to have something on the internet, and you can't wait for the next moment to broadcast something. Um, yeah, I've come across many challenges in the endeavor to um, convince people that social media is public value. These are just a few things I heard in my own newsroom. Social media is a waste of time. Social media is not my job. I do television. I do radio. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I've got time for social media. We haven't got staff for social media. So here, obviously, you need to do a lot of rethinking in the newsrooms and plan new structures. One important thing that also Silla Benko just said before, the bosses need to understand it. I'm very pleased that one of my bosses is in the audience. Um, you need to make a company policy that social media is our job and that we're not just doing television and radio. You need to pro provide training for all journalists. You need to create social news teams. <coughs> so if the Pope is resigning, somebody is in charge of posting something on social media. Um, you need to have editorial guidelines. 
you need to tell your bosses, now you can't let PR people do the job. It's a journalist's job to do this. And you also need the right equipment. Without smartphones and tablets, you people can't do the job. So where's the public value? It's quite obvious. You have better stories faster. You have more views. You have more sources. You have more relevant stories because you know what the audience is talking about. You give the audience, you give the community a voice. You have more credibility and you build trust. That's the topic of today's um, conference. And all of that will get you a bigger and a, hopefully a new and younger audience. So that's it from me. If you want to read the details, they're here. You can use this this one. Yeah. Okay, so I can't use the mouth. No, it's not attached. Okay, Nazim. Yeah. So I have also been a fellow at the LSE and my fellowship ended just a few weeks ago. I haven't completely finished my report yet, unfortunately. Um, what I do? I have worked in Swedish media for quite a while. I've done most things. Um, news agencies, broadcasting, um, morning papers, because that's what it's like in Sweden. You basically move around. It's hard to get a permanent job. Uh, I was focusing on... Uh, um, black minority ethnic issues, as well as foreign reporting, mainly um, up to the Arab Spring, which quite changed for me. So nowadays I work as a social media developer at Switch Radio, which kind of means that I am placed in a central knowledge hub at Swedish Radio, and we are working as experts with the hundreds of people around the company who are working with social media on an everyday basis. And I'm also a co-author of this handbook that we developed. We were looking for a very hands-on approach on how to do everyday news reporting, everything from um, hard news to features to investigative journalism with social media. Uh, and it goes down to verification, finding news, disseminating your stuff, getting a wide coverage, and creating a good dialogue, creating trust, really. Um, so we're very proud of this. We just launched it. It's not out in English yet, but I ha uh, we're working on a translation which will be out digitally within the next few weeks. And if you're interesting, interested, I have a bunch of uh, business cards up here. So just pick one and send me an email or tweet at me and I will send you the link when it's out there. Anyway, so what, I, what have I looked into? We did this handbook and we had a lot of Swedish examples, but what I was really looking at when I came here to do my fellowship was how to combine my two areas of expertise. And the idea came to me because a campaign that we had in Sweden last fall in Sweden and running almost since then, we have had a huge discussion on everyday racism that are faced by minorities in Sweden. <coughs> there might be a cliché picture of Swedes as tall and blonde, but 
around 25% of all Swedes actually have a parent that's born abroad, which makes it a very diverse country. So this kicked off with the radio presenter accidentally being caught on tape by saying something about, um, what should I call them, darkies or blackies that are football players. Uh, It's a quite untranslatable derogative term. But he was basically angry about black football players. And this created a huge discussion on racism in Sweden, but almost all of the discussion was focused on who is a racist and who is not. What's racist to say and what's racist, what isn't. But one of our smallest news channels, we have around 40 channels at Swedish Radio, um, they work with the urban young population in Stockholm. And they thought that this discussion was a bit crazy. So they switched, they turned the tables and they said, what does it feel like to hear terms such as a darkie or a blackie or whatever? (coughs) And they went out on social media widely. They coordinated it for a week. They went out on Twitter, Facebook. You could email, you could call in. They had a YouTube film with the famous Swedes telling about how they were exposed to racism. And this created five or six hundred stories from regular Swedes who shared their experiences. Everything from being arrested by police when you're out jogging because you would look suspicious to being randomly selected for additional screening at the airport. So I thought, okay, UK is a diverse country. Um, how are what's happening in British media? Are there case studies to be found? Before I go into that. Let's look at this number. 94% of British UK journalists are white, according to a report by NUJ that was published quite recently. Um, And they're mainly based in London and South East, although the UK is big. 94% white. The workforce is less than 60% white. That means there's quite a big discrepancy between who actually works in media in covering what the UK looks like. But then again, if we only stick to this, we will always be blaming the victim, basically, saying that minority journalists should do the job. They, just due to your race, you will be the person who is fit to cover certain issues, who will always have to be the advocate, who will always have to have this perspective, and you will be basically racified and reduced to that. But let's look at social media. There is a way now that you don't actually have to attend meetings physically. You don't actually have to talk to a lot of people to get an overview. You will have to do it eventually, when you do your story. But if you actually want to make your influx of ideas and news sources wider, here are quite powerful tools for you in your everyday coverage. What I also found was that, at least I get the sense that quite often, journalists in the UK are generating the ideas, commissioning the stories. And when that is done, you will go out to social media and start researching and looking for stories. But what if your view of the world in the first place is what creates the stories you start looking at and pursuing? What if you could get a wider range of ideas by having 
a wider influx. So, a few examples I've found. Forums. There are hundreds of forums in the UK. Um, one of them is Muslim Youth Net. I learned this from one of the researchers at LSE, um, Shaku Banaji, and she's been looking at a lot of forums. And this is one of... I think I got the name right. This is one of the ones that she was most interested in because she said that there were discussions going on on a wide area of topics. They had a very clever way of moderation and there were stories that weren't picked up. Like, for example, postcode, postcode wars. Like, when the postcode where you live will actually decide if there's a rivalry between your neighbourhood and the other. Um, and there were lots of people who would provide good case stories or whatever. But she said, or as I understood her, that people at this forum weren't really approached until there was a discussion on terrorism, London bombings. What do young British Muslims think? And then journalists would go out to the forum and, you know, you take, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of peoples and people and you're like, what do they think? I mean, try find one opinion there. Basically, people were quite angry with them which is a core issue with forums. You have to create trust. You have to give, then you will also get. If you're participating in the discussions, if you've been following the forum for a while, if you're picking up on the language and the culture and the norms in this specific forum, that's where you can approach people. Technology. Nigerian Watch. Minority newspaper, uh, quite newly issued are drawing a lot of numbers on how young Nigerians in the UK are well-educated, pursuing higher education, and they feel that quite often UK Nigerians would basically be described as, I don't know, fraudsters, for example, an image they don't agree with. So they launched their own we uh, monthly newspaper. And I spoke to both the editor-in-chief and their web editor, and he has... 5,000 friends on Facebook, four or 5,000, that's the limit, but he has even more followers. So he gets access to a lot of people within the Nigerian community. He will have a lot of stories, he will know where things are happening, and he has a Blackberry. How many in here have a Blackberry? <laughs> yeah, thank you, not too many. Um, if I did this, ask this question to mainstream journalists, I would be curious in how many that would have a BlackBerry over there. And what makes the BlackBerry special? You can send BBMs. BBM is a kind of, I don't know what to compare it with, but a free group text message or an emailing list or something like that that circulates. And when he told me that, it just reminded me of my, how my second cousins in Egypt were telling me that before the revolution, they were getting a lot of BBMs all the time, telling people to go to Tahrir Square, for example, which you will not pick up on if you don't have a BlackBerry. Facebook groups. One of my interns has worked with uh, refugees in Denmark, and basically what she did was deliver a lot of Facebook groups to me where people actually, how should I put it, that's where you go on if you're a refugee trying to make it to Europe. 
That's how you find tips of good smugglers, how you know who to trust, how much the cost is, and so forth. Um, we also had in Sweden the Bosnian community, which is very well educated, that basically made Swedish television apologize for a documentary about Srebrenica in about a week, basically by using Facebook. Because there are, the Bosnian community is well-educated, well-integrated, but not that mu- very much organized. All of a sudden, angry Swedish Bosniaks came together, made a Facebook group, it got 10,000 members, they went into a smaller Facebook group, organized protests, and in the end, uh, <coughs> Swedish television had to apologize. This is a way to tap into these discussions. If you have a wide network online, here's a story that you will find. Twitter. Twitter is very popular among journalists. In Sweden, around, I think, 5% of the population are actually on Twitter. Twitter has become wider and more diverse, but nevertheless... I would say that the interest shown in Twitter compared to Facebook, for example, isn't exactly proportional. When I was here, just for a few weeks, these are a couple of hashtags that were trending here. You know you're Asian when? Mosque Day memories, Asian house rules. Mainly for fun. But if Twitter looks like this, this is a survey from Sweden showing who follows who on Swedish Twitter. This is what it looks like. You will have people here... These are all the journalists, politicians. They're in the same group. They follow each other. Down here, we have sports, for example. Um, Over here, we have the schooling system, librarians. Here, we have people who are interested in the stock market. Um, Here, we have people who are living in Värmland, which is a part of Sweden. So basically, journalists, they're hanging out here on Twitter, And all these other people here are not that much covered. But there's something you can do about it. If you don't want to follow all of them, make a list. When you have a hashtag like that trending, go on there and just add as many people as you can to your list. And all of a sudden, you will have a continuous flow from more diverse people. And on general, they will, of course, not tweet on other stuff than most other people do because... Seriously, just because you're from a minority doesn't mean that you don't go to school, have a family and care about the taxes. But occasionally you find a story that these 94% white journalists maybe in in general not have thought about. And here's another example. Dear Beatrice, um, to put it short, it was a hashtag that happened after the police in Sweden started racial profiling what they thought were illegal immigrants. The success ratio was 1 to 10, which meant that 9 people out of 10 that the Swedish police were pulling over or stopping in the Swedish tube were actually Swedish citizens, and 1 in 10 was an illegal immigrant, which meant that people who happened to have darker hair could not even plan their journey to work because they might get arrested by somebody on the tube, asking them for the password. Uh, pass- passport, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, almost the same, you know. So what happened here was that people went on Twitter and they got hashtag trending. There was a Swedish author who wrote a story on this, which became one of the most spread stories ever in Swedish media. 
And all of a sudden, you would have a force actually pushing up a story on the agenda. Still, I would say this was not at all as covered as another story, which was quite ridiculous. A a Swedish musician went out and said that he was going to change... I don't know, his line of music into doing rock instead, and he like dyed his hair black, and it turned out that it was just a PR stunt. This was covered a lot, probably, I'm saying, because Swedish media, which is quite white as well, know who this musician is, and they can relate to him, while they may not be able to relate to everyday racism. So being able to evaluate that, there are tools for that. You can actually count how popular a hashtag is. And Dear Beatrice was a lot more popular than the musician hashtag. But nevertheless, that one got more coverage. Problems. Newsroom attitudes. Nadia spoke about that already. Status. A, when you're working with uh, diverse coverage. B, when you're working with social media. It's not a very grateful position to have. I'm very thankful to be working at Swedish Radio where these are actually prioritized. Uh, Lack of skills. When you recruit, you will not recruit the persons who actually have these sets of skills that you need to be able to verify sources and create trust online. And also attitude towards journalists. I was very surprised that a lot of media companies, when I started contacting journalists here, do not actually have their email addresses online. I had to try to work out how to contact people, and when I contacted them on Twitter, it went a lot more smoothly. So, I would say that being accessible to the audience and having a dialogue with average people would create a lot more ideas for stories. Risks if we don't do this. Become, we become less and less relevant for a large share of the population, which is growing. And we lose revenue, because why would you buy a publication that's not relevant to you? And the potential is quite obvious. You do better journalism, because you report and reflect everybody's situation. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Guys, on the basis that everybody will be queuing up already for sandwiches outside, I'm going to use uh, I'm going to take this to ten past, and by hopefully that time the queue for sandwiches will have uh, will have gone down a bit, and we can perhaps get some questions and some thoughts in. Does anybody have any any anything that they want to ask? Or yes, please. I, I use Hootsuite, but there's TweetDeck and a million others. So, yeah. And it, he uses TweetDeck a lot. Hootsuite, yeah. TweetDeck. And if you want to count tweets, know how popular hashtags are, for example, there are tools such as Listly, for example, and uh, Notified. Anybody else? I, I would just be interested to ask um, the par- the, both, both Yasmin and Nadia briefly about the whole kind of newsroom cultural thing. I mean, you both talked about how wonderful social media can be and what you can achieve, but presumably you need to 
deal with some quite um, uh, difficult attitudes and responses that you both hinted in hinted to in the newsroom. Um, and, and I just wonder whether you could just very quickly, in a couple of sentences, talk about your own experiences, perhaps, and, and what you think needs to happen in newsrooms to make, to make these changes. Um, I think I'll start because um, I'm in a very particular situation in Austria for the Austrian public broadcaster. Um, social media is more or less forbidden. So that basically. So you can't. So, you, so if you're a public service broadcaster in Austria, you can't use social media. We can, but an, to a very, very limited extent. We're having a, a, law, a court case pending with the private media who are suing us because we're you having. We have Facebook pages, and they don't like that because they think we're killing the online revenue market. So we're in a really tricky situation, and that that um, basically had the result that we never learned how to do it. The whole, everybody says, well, we can't touch social media, so you don't have journalists who actually know how this media works. Um, that's our situation, and that also prompted the fact that the bosses don't, are still not getting it. You know, they're thinking radio, they're thinking television, maybe they're thinking internet, but they're certainly not thinking social media yet, because we can't do it, but we're a bit late. So here's a problem uh, in terms of newsroom culture. If you haven't got the message from the Uber boss telling you social media is our job, then it's a really tough task trying to, to get people to do training, to look into it, to go on Twitter, to use Facebook. And it's kind of feeding the skepticism, oh, this is crap, we shouldn't do it, this isn't serious. So, um, so how are you fighting that battle? Uh, there, there's me. <laughs> starting to do little working groups and trainings and inviting trainers to come to Austria and tell us about it because we really need to catch up. And, and Yasmin, is it a similar situation as Sweden? Not really, actually. <laughs> um, to start with, working with social media in Sweden is quite handy because we have a huge internet penetration. We are, have always been very early adopters when it comes to... To internet and so you can really say that everybody is on social media that may not work when you're covering Egypt for example because it will be an elite but here it's not really so I think a lot of younger to generalize journalists have understood this and they don't you know they will just use it um, sometimes they cross the boundaries but they do it anyway and they're excellent at research they will be around 25. They will be on an 11-month contract maximum because it, when it's 12, you have to hire them. So <laughs> I've had several 11-month contracts. So what happens is that you have quite a wide level at the lowest management level at the company where people are quite clever and really know this widely. Then you have a middle um, set of people who don't. I think... The further away you are from the audience you're covering, the le less you realize how much everybody's using social media. But the difference for us is we have a top executive level, Silla, who was speaking earlier, who are really promoting this. They are saying this is important, this is one of the things we need to develop. For two years they've had their own blog. You can look it up. Uh, a lot there is in English as well. It's called uh, Journalism 3.0. Um, and they are pushing this. We have a CEO who's on Twitter. She's really trying to show that this is important. And she commissioned this. This came out to every one of the 2,000 plus, I think, employees we have at Swedish Radio with a letter from the CEO saying, read this, you should do this. 
follow these rules. And the rules are not mainly don't do this, don't do this. It's how to do this. And it's a very important message. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I'm very interested in what you said. Nick King, I work in the College of Policing. We had a similar journey in the UK around uh, people not understanding social media, not liking social media. Nothing like a good crisis to wake them up. Indeed. And we had the August riots 2011, and people were not talking about it in July, were really talking about it in September. I suggest Austria just hasn't had a crisis that's... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I think it's a very, no, it's a no, very sorry, serious point. We have elections, so there's crisis this, enough. Something that yeah. gets into old media <laughs> and talks about it in a, in a different way yeah. other than it's trivial, it's rubbish, suddenly changes mindsets in a different way. And I just think, unfortunately, yeah. you either change without the crisis, which is what some people have done, or unfortunately... And that's interesting because our foreign minister is on Twitter and has been so for quite a while. And basically, it's rubbish. He was blogging, then he went to Twitter. Whenever you try to get a quote, they will say, check his Twitter account. Mm -hmm. But fair (laughs) enough, it actually forces journalists to go on Twitter to see what he is writing. That's very good point. Is there anything else? Otherwise, it's probably lunchtime. Thank you very thank you Yasmin, thank you Nadia.